Thank you. Please turn with me to Genesis chapter 35. Our passage this week is the first 15 verses of Genesis 35, which I will read for us now. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed to himself revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Oh, Father, I just pray that your people would be receiving today that which I have to give, which is nothing other than the steadfast rock of your word. And whatever your spirit may be pleased to illuminate for us from your word. Uh, Father, send your spirit now, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we move through chapters 34 and now part of 35 and eventually chapter 36 of Genesis, I think it's important to step back and look at a bigger picture. And in this case, I don't mean the same theological big picture I usually talk about. I'm often pounding into your head the overall theological themes that we encounter in this book because those themes, especially the idea of tracing the seed of the woman down through the generations, that seed that eventually culminates in the true seed of the woman, Jesus the Messiah, who would ultimately crush the head of the seed of the serpent— and the promises that follow the line of the seed of the woman, those themes come up over and over. And I keep pointing them out to you because I'm determined to help Christians appreciate the overall framework of the storyline of Scripture. 
If we don't understand the framework of the storyline of Scripture, it can be hard to interpret individual passages properly, and it can also be hard to find our proper place in the storyline. But that's not my goal today. My goal today in stepping back is actually to step back even a little further and look at some aspects of the nature of Scripture itself. And to do so, we'll use aspects displayed in this particular passage. The first thing I'd like to point out to you from this passage regarding the nature of Scripture will not be a new concept to most of you, especially if you've been listening to any of these messages from the rest of the book of Genesis. The concept here is that the Bible presents actual, genuine history. Another way of saying this is that the Bible presents to us more than just stories that lend themselves well to a Sunday school setting. Certainly, we do read some incredibly engaging narratives Back more than a year ago, we read about the creation of the whole universe and all the plants and animals and the first human, Adam. We read about the first temptation and the first sin of Adam back in the garden. We read about the first murder of Abel by Cain. We read about a man named Noah being called by God to build a huge ark for a global flood that took more than 100 years to come as foretold and about how Noah and his family kept alive enough of the land animals to repopulate the earth after this global flood. We read about Abraham being called by God to leave his pagan family and his pagan region and to set out for a land he didn't know, in order that God might fulfill promises to him and to his descendants. We read about how Abraham's wife Sarah was barren, but how God eventually appeared to them in human form to confirm his word and to announce that in another year's time, they would actually have a newborn son, Isaac. We read about how God rained down fire and brimstone on the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah for their shameful their shameful, lascivious conduct before God and man, and how Lot escaped with his two daughters, but how Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt. I could keep going on up until the accounts we've read more recently about God calling Abraham to sacrifice Isaac and then stopping him at the last moment, about Isaac and Jacob each finding wives, about Jacob deceiving his twin brother Esau out of his blessing and birthright. I could tell again about how Jacob ended up marrying two wives and by those two wives and two other servants bore 12 sons and at least one daughter although we haven't come to that 12th son yet. Most of that material seems ready-made for Sunday school stories to teach young children the content and overall picture of the Bible. But if you've been paying attention, you've also noticed that we had more than just these kinds of stories. We've read chapters filled with genealogies, showing generation after generation who descended from whom. In fact, We got another chapter full of genealogies right ahead of us in chapter 36. We've also read detailed accounts about horrible events, events you're highly unlikely to retell in a children's Sunday school. We read about Noah's final lapse into sin and his son Ham's lecherous activity. We read about Lot's daughters and their highly questionable choices. We read about Abraham and Isaac, each taking their wives into foreign lands putting them at risk to save their own skins by saying that they were sisters and not wives. And just last week, we read about how Shechem defiled Dinah and about how Jacob and his sons reacted in the aftermath. These are not fairy tales that begin with, 
once upon a time in a land far, far away. And they're not stories that always paint the heroes in a good light. Many of the heroes, in fact, virtually all of the human heroes are portrayed with their most obvious flaws and their worst sins and worst decisions for all of humanity forever after to see. The point is that this is not just mythology. It's not just bedtime stories or fairy tales. It's not just moralistic tales to teach you how the giraffe got its long neck or why you should eat your vegetables and share with your siblings. This is the very history of our world from the first moment God spoke the universe into existence. We don't have every single detail, but we have an awful lot of the details that help us to locate these narratives in time and space and to push us into dealing with the claims that the Bible makes on all our lives. Take this passage, for instance, these first 15 verses of chapter 35. We're winding up some of the details about the story of Jacob here and his brother Esau in the next chapter before the accounts are completely dominated by Jacob's sons, especially Joseph. And one piece of information we read here in this passage, though I'm taking it a bit out of order, shows us just how much rich historical detail we see in these accounts. Verse 8, Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth, which you may see in your margin or at the bottom of your Bible page means Oak of Weeping. Well, this is really an incredible piece of information. We first heard about this woman back in chapter 24, verse 59. She was identified there as simply the nurse of Rebecca, who has sent along with her from her brother Laban's house when Rebecca agreed to leave home and marry Isaac. So this woman was a nurse to Rebecca and then lived with Rebecca and Isaac, likely the entire time Isaac and Rebecca were waiting to have children, which was about 20 years, and all the time that Jacob and Esau lived at home together as well, which is another 70, 75 years. And now we can see why she was named here, because she must have been incredibly old. Most women's ages are not reported in the scripture. But if she was the woman who nursed Rebecca, and Jacob is more than 100 years old at this point, then Deborah must be about 160 years old or older. That's just a rough guess, but I think it's a pretty good one based on the time, st- time scale we're given. This woman must have had a loving relationship with Jacob and his family, and also the fact that her death is mentioned, but not the death of Rebecca, Jacob's own beloved mother, is incredible as well. But Deborah's presence with Jacob and his family is probably the best evidence we have that Rebecca had already died, because Rebecca's death was probably the catalyst for Deborah leaving the home of Isaac to live with Jacob and his wives and children, probably sometime after Jacob had fled Laban's household in Padan Aram. Deborah may have even served as something of a grandmother to Jacob's children. The name Jacob gives to this oak, the oak of weeping, is telling as well. He and his family seem to have truly mourned for Deborah. Even this tiny historical detail lends tremendous weight to the veracity of this account. In what way does this detail enhance the story? To bring back and name this previously unidentified woman just to say that she's died? Well, if you're crafting a story out of thin air, you wouldn't do this. But if you're communicating history, you might, as Moses had, aided by the Holy Spirit. 
And this tiny detail doesn't just lend historical veracity to the account. It also reminds us that the death of our loved ones is indeed a cause for grief and weeping and mourning, at least for a time. Jacob may have been mourning his relationship with Deborah, whom he had known all his life. And he may have been mourning the relationship she had developed with his family. And even possibly, he could have been mourning the fact that he was never able to see his mother, Rebecca, again, was never able to rekindle that relationship, and was never able to properly mourn her death. For the people of God, there's always a mixture of grief with contentment, and maybe even with rejoicing when someone we love who has followed Jesus dies. The Bible tells us in Psalm 116, verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Even though death is an enemy that entered God's very good creation through the sin of Adam and Eve, Jesus has overcome death on behalf of his own sheep so that we do not need only mourn when a beloved follower of Christ dies. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, that we don't need to grieve as others do who have no hope. He's talking about those who grieve because they don't know the living God. They don't have any real hope of seeing their loved ones in the next life, even though they might talk about it. We understand that the death of one of God's people is an end to their life in this hard world, this world that is cursed because of sin. So even though we mourn, and we mourn losing them, perhaps only for a time, and it's good to mourn, we don't mourn unconsolably. Even when we mourn the death of someone we're pretty sure did not follow Christ, we who do follow Christ, though we mourn for what may very well be a lost soul, again, we have a hope. A hope in a sovereign God who is always good and right and just. As the hymn proclaims, whatever my God ordains is right. We know we can entrust every hurt, every despair, every broken dream, every personal failing, and every difficult circumstance to a good and merciful God who ordains all things for his glory and for the good of those who love him. Now, since the passage immediately prior to this one was all about defilement, Dinah was defiled by Shechem, Jacob was defiled by his own inaction, and Simeon and Levi were defiled by their taking vengeance on Shechem and Hamor, this chapter opens by focusing on purification. And the purification comes as a result of God's revelation to Jacob. God has spoken to Jacob now, again here in verse 1, and told him to go back to Bethel and dwell there and build an altar. God has told Jacob to go back to the place where God first spoke to him and revealed not only the ladder between heaven and earth, but also first clearly passed on the promises of Abraham and Isaac to him. So here's the second aspect of scripture I want to point out to you in this passage. Scripture serves as God's revelation to us. Scripture serves as God's revelation to us. 
Scripture is the way God reveals himself to us in these last days through his son, Jesus Christ, as it says in Hebrews 1. Jesus is called the word of God. Think about John 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So we have God's living word in the person of Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead and lives forevermore. And we also have his written word in the Bible, which is frequently called things like the law, the prophets, and the writings. And the New Testament is put on on par with the scriptures of the Old Testament. We hear it called things like the more sure word of prophecy and the revelation of Jesus Christ. God's word serves as a revelation to his people about who he is, what he's done, how he's guided and shaped and ordained history, and also what claims he makes on our lives. And not just the lives who proclaim to follow him, but on the lives of everyone and everything in his entire creation, because he is the supreme creator and he's Lord over all. Everyone submits to his will eventually, either voluntarily or unwillingly, And even while they live on this earth, people who intentionally, actively disobey and subvert his moral commands still still end up being mere pawns in the course of history that he ordains and shapes. So when we encounter the revelation of God, as Jacob does in verse 1, we must respond. Jacob's response here is to deal once and for all with any idol worship in his family. These foreign idols that he commands his household to put away, they might include the household gods that Rachel had stolen from her father Laban. They might also include items acquired in the plunder of the city of Shechem. Verse 4, for example, mentions earrings, possibly because earrings were often shaped into idolatrous figurines, and also possibly because they might provide the most readily available raw material for crafting a larger idolatrous image, as occurred later on in the events recorded in Exodus 32, where it says in verse 3 that the people took off the rings of gold in their ears to give to Aaron to make an idol for them. And Jacob commanded them to change their clothes as well. A change of clothing throughout the Old Testament and New Testament frequently refers to an act of purification, whether it was a purification ritual for the priests and Levites, or whether it's the symbolic change of clothing that occurs when a person repents and follows Christ. Isaiah 61.10 talks about rejoicing in the Lord, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. There's symbolic power in the clothing we wear. So part of our response to God's revelation is to walk in obedience and purity, especially. This getting rid of idols and changing garments, this all speaks of our letting go of our reliance on the world and our affinity for the world and demonstrating our utter devotion to God. Sometimes new converts will do something like this today. There have been a couple of times in my Christian walk that I've gotten rid of certain kinds of music that had a negative impact on my spiritual life, whether it was secular music or Christian-themed music that was doctrinally and practically destructive. I don't say this is something every Christian has to do, but I will say I think much of our church subculture tends to downplay just how close to the world they really live and really want to live. 
What I mean by that is the worldliness they try to live in as they also try to walk the narrow road of following Christ. We are particularly susceptible to that temptation in our nation because we live in such a prosperous society, generally speaking. The temptations of the world don't always come dressed in a devil's suit. You don't have to be caught up in hardcore pornography to be enticed away by the mindless, soul-sucking entertainment foisted on us through nearly every means possible. You don't have to listen to satanic music to listen to music that takes your focus off Christ and puts it on something else like your own heartaches and your personal dreams devoid of Christ's leading. You don't have to bow down before a gold figurine in order to cave into societal pressures that would have you worship money and the seeming control it offers, or to worship politics and the apparent justice it may offer, or to worship relationships and the apparent emotional healing they may offer, or to worship comfort and the apparent rest it may offer. All these false gods, God calls us to submit to him when we put on the new man. And even more explicitly, the Spirit calls us through the Apostle Paul's words in Ephesians 4 that we heard Jeremy read earlier to put away things like falsehood, anger, malice, bitterness, thievery, and corrupting talk. Many such attitudes are revered in our culture. Our culture of standing up for yourself and cutting out toxic people and look out for number one. Every one of those pieces of advice may have a measure of wisdom in them, but every single one can also also easily be taken to an unhealthy extreme where the focus is always me, me, me. God calls us to be pure, being renewed in the spirit of our minds and putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And if you remember our study in 1 John, the Apostle John calls us not to love the world or the things of the world because those things are passing away. God's revelation in this chapter 35 on the surface seems a little repetitive. He tells Jacob again that his name is no longer Jacob but Israel, and he clearly enumerates the promises that he will bring to pass in his life as he's been stating them very similarly to not only Abraham and Isaac before him, but to Adam even, be fruitful and multiply, Adam and Eve, and even to Jacob himself the last time God appeared to him in Bethel. And so you might ask, why all this repetition? But seriously, how many times do we need to hear the promises of God spoken into our lives? Whether by reading God's word or hearing it read to us or hearing it preached to us, singing it in our hymns, having a wise friend counsel us from God's word, Don't we continually need to hear the word of God in order to walk in faithfulness? We shouldn't begrudge this repetition, given the amazingly easy access we have to the promises of God in scriptures that didn't fully exist until these words were all written down and completed by the end of the first century AD. Even in much of the rest of the world, many Christians have little to no access to the Bible, and they hang on maybe one or two or maybe a dozen verses that they've memorized. God's revelation to us is precious, it's necessary, and it should lead us to respond in purity and obedience. Finally, God's word is a continual demonstration to us of his eternal love and covenant faithfulness. 
It's a continual demonstration to us of his eternal love and covenant faithfulness. His faithfulness to himself, first and foremost, which is what undergirds his ability to always carry through with his promises and purposes. And then his subsequent faithfulness to us, the beneficiaries of many of his promises. This is all true, even despite our worst failings. Look at Jacob. He's just come out of one of the most questionable incidents of his life up to this point. He'd successfully fled Laban and reconciled with his brother Esau, but he never actually did make it back to the promised land of his father's house or even back to Bethel where God had first spoken to him. Instead, he settled in the wicked land of Shechem, and as we discussed last week, he never really treated his family justly, but instead foisted upon them the evils of extreme favoritism. He didn't stand up against the vile treatment experienced by his daughter Dinah, and because of that, he never guided his sons into an appropriate response, but left them instead to try to bring about justice themselves, and in doing so, they went beyond what was appropriate. Well, this is the backdrop of what we see today. Even on the heels of our worst moments, God faithfully comes to us, faithfully reveals himself to us, and faithfully calls us back to faithfulness. This is the essence of the gospel message right here. In many gospel-preaching churches, we speak clearly about the necessity of the Spirit's work in regenerating us. But we can be less clear sometimes about what happens to us after we're converted. You know what? The same gospel still applies after we're converted. We need to remember every day, yes, we're called to purity. Yes, we're called to faithfulness. Yes, we're called to obedience. But these things can only happen because God is faithful to carry through. The Apostle Paul tells us in the beginning of his letter to the Philippians, one of my favorite New Testament books, I think we may walk through Philippians after we complete Genesis. Paul writes in Philippians 1 verse 6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. He will bring the good work he began in you to completion. Yes, we have responsibilities. Yes, we need to walk in the Spirit, put on the new man, and be renewed in our mind rather than be conformed to the world. But as Paul writes again in the very next chapter of Philippians, it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We can bring our worst to God. Even after we've already been converted and been washed, we can crawl back to God in the wake of our worst failures and hear him call us back to faithfulness because he is faithful. You know how we say that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? The penalty for those sins was paid long, far long before you were ever born or I was ever born, if you're one of his own sheep. And we're not just talking about the sins you committed before you were converted. Does Jesus need to die again for some sin you just committed yesterday or haven't committed yet? No. The penalty for all those sins was laid on Jesus on the cross, just like the penalty for all your earlier sins, if you belong to him. Isn't that a glorious truth? We see every day that God's word, his written word and his living word, 
is a demonstration of his covenant love and faithfulness toward us. Without that steady rock, we are each houses built on sand. Without that guiding light, we're lost in the darkness of the evil all around us. And when we succumb to that evil for a moment, when we lose our way, when we fail at perfectly living up to God's high calling in Christ Jesus, we know that Jesus still sits at the right hand of the Father, pleading his shed blood on our behalf. What a friend, what a great Savior we have in Jesus. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, your Spirit is the only thing that can awaken in us that desire to live pure and holy lives. It's the only thing that can cleanse us from our sinful state to replace hearts of stone with hearts of flesh and to renew our minds so that we can not be conformed to this world, so that we can rise above and walk in the midst of this dark and lustful world without being completely overcome. And Lord, for the times when we have allowed the muck of the world to rub off on us, Lord, we present ourselves before you today again and ask you to cleanse us afresh. Forgive us our sins, Lord, and bring us more clarity of spirit, clarity of mind, joyful hearts, and peaceful souls so that we may be a bride that you are presented by Jesus, spotless and blameless, free of blemish. Lord, we we beseech you to do this on our behalf and pray that you would give us the boldness to continue to answer your call toward purity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let us celebrate in a spirit of unity exactly what Jesus did for us on the cross. He allowed his body to be broken for us after having lived a perfectly obedient life, one that we never could have lived, and died that horrible death that we deserved to die because of our sin. And let's not only remember his death for us, but also his glorious resurrection. He was raised so that we could be declared justified before God. And then he was brought up into heaven so that he can continually beseech the Father on our behalf until the day that we are called to live with him in glory. Let us share this meal together